Okay. Uh, the baskets on your table are for St. Matthew's uh, Soup Kitchen. I, th- I think that's what they call it still. Is that right? I mean, but they serve more than just soup, though, I think. I don't know if it's misleading. I'm kidding. It's a great thing. Uh, it's yeah, on uh, Pilsen neighborhood. Okay. Let's pray. Merciful God, we humbly implore you to cast the bright beams of your light upon your church, that we, being instructed by the doctrine of the blessed apostles, may walk in the light of your truth and finally attain the light of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, I don't know what Pastor Ruzik has said any, uh, taught, so I don't know that we could be teaching. I, I don't know what I'm going to say today, so let's just let's kind of wing it. Wing it. Um, no, I'm, I'm teasing. So, um... Pastor Brusick's out in California, enjoying the weather. Yep. Tell, tell us who to vote for. Whatever your conscience leads you to. Um, all right. So, um, so Pastor Brusick just said, "Hey, go ahead and just teach a, a you know a couple one offers." I um, so. In November, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be going to Miami. Yes, I know. It's a very difficult, difficult thing. Um, a few, last year, well, it started a few years ago. Um, actually, I should take, we'll go way back to September of 2006, my last year in seminary. There was a marriage and family institute at the seminary. Pastor Bruzik was there. He taught. Um, but one, another man was there. His name was Christopher West. And he taught a, a lecture on this thing called the theology of the body. And it was very interesting for, for a lot of the seminarian students. And through that experience, um, this, this topic, the theology of the body, was kind of introduced to me. Now fast forward a couple of years ago, and just kind of what's happening around us in our culture, the, the theology of the body became something that was a much more kind of practical interest for me, and so we I, we did a little research about um, kind of learning more uh, on the theology of the body, and we found this thing called the Theology of the Body Institute. Uh, and they it's a it's a it's a very intensive uh, uh, it's graduate level kind of courses, and they usually are in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and there's a variety of, of teachers within the Theology of the Body Institute, but I really wanted to have Christopher Wes, and it just, it just so happened um, the one available time before Advent started this fall happened to be in Miami. So, I, uh, yeah, I know, in, in Miami in November, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's I'm sure it's, Yeah, so make sure that, you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll fill out a prayer request form and have you pray for me to handle it. No, uh, anyways, uh, well, the Theology of the Body Institute, uh, I, I just, there's some information on there you can read it yourself. But it is, uh, it's, its sole purpose is to kind of uh, teach this thing called the Theology of the Body. Uh, what is the Theology of the Body? Well, it's, uh, but the, by the way, the course is, I mean, I know it's going to be on Miami, but I, I'm assuming I'm going to be inside 
because it's 30 hours of instruction in five days. So, and I, yeah, there's, yeah, I have 1,200 pages of reading already, and so I will not be heading to South Beach. I just can't see you. You can't see me at South Beach? I fit right in. What are you talking about? Hey, it's, it's where we practice the theology of the body. <laughs> On the beach. So, it's a good thing my wife's not here, because she, she would say, don't tempt him. Because <laughs> right, I, you know, I always tease my kids. I'm like, hey, maybe Dad should get a suit like that. I can never tell if I'm serious or not. Um, okay. The theology of the body uh, is something that was taught by John Paul II, former pope, um, in a series of 129 lectures uh, on something called the kind of the Wednesday afternoon audiences. And it was over five years, but it wasn't every Wednesday for five years. It was, uh, it, they started and stopped. But it's a, a teaching on what it means to be fully human, male and female. The theology of the body um, is John Paul's first major teaching project as the pope. And it's a grand proposal to the world, the deepest meaning of life and love made visible in the body. Now, the idea of, you know, thinking of your body theologically sounds a bit strange. I mean, this is something that we don't, you know, in confirmation, we don't, I mean, I don't teach the confirmation kids about the theology of the body. And um, it's not something that we kind of just think about in our normal piety, but it is actually something very, actually, primary, and uh, there's a nice little quote there from uh, John Paul's teaching. Uh, Through the fact that the word of God became flesh, the body entered theology through the main door. So the theology of the body is just thinking about your body theologically. Um, now, this morning, we, we think about the body actually theologically all the time, whether you're aware of it or not. What would be the most, you know, kind of fundamental example of us thinking theologically about the body? Good job, everybody. That's right. The Eucharist. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I said it, I don't know, a couple hundred times this morning. The body of Christ given for you, the body of Christ given for you. So, um, it, uh, the theology of the body is something... Now, whether it's John Paul's understanding of theology body or not, I'm not arguing for that, but I'm, I'm just thinking about thinking about your body theologically is part of your actually the normal Christian life. And um, what John Paul has done, though, is he actually has bring it to the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And I think that's very important for us now because what he taught, you know, 2016 minus 1984, 32 years ago, right? Um, it would have been great if a lot more people were interested in it 32 years ago rather than 2016 because now the interest is really behind the eight ball rather than being kind of preemptive because there's been a whole generation that's grown up um, not thinking about the theology of the body, or I'm sorry, actually thinking about the body in a way that's antithetical towards the Bible and they're fill, I mean, and a lot of them don't go to church anymore even though they were all baptized in 1984. Okay, so it's something that will kind of come along. 
and, and see uh, it's really important. Okay, so what does the theology of the body have to do with the creed? Well, it has a lot of things to do with the creed. And this is actually what first popped in my head when Pastor Bruzik said he was going to be gone. Uh, now, did Pastor Bruzik, I'm assuming he's talked about the Nicene. We confess the Nicene Creed in church. And there's also something called the Apostles' Creed. Okay. Um, so the Nicene Creed, kind of simple way of understanding, you know, the differences is uh, the Nicene Creed was created originally by a community as a confession of Orthodox faith. The Apostles' Creed was originally created for uh, an individual baptismal faith. So the Apostles' Creed was typically confessed by the individual before one's baptism, which is exactly what we do you know, at St. John. Um, just in case you know, you've never noticed, it's not to make the service shorter, because it's already long since we have a baptism. So that's one way to save time. It's, uh, it, we actually do confess the Apostles' Creed in baptism because it is just historically what has always been done. And then just kind of during the quote-unquote normal church service, we do the Nicene Creed. So uh, with that said, though, the Nicene Creed has a line in there, uh, maker of things visible and invisible. And uh, that's a very important line because in John Paul, in, in the teaching, and this makes sense because of John chapter 1, most, most specifically John chapter 1, verse 14, is that the body is what makes the invisible visible. The invisible God became visible when Christ took on the flesh in, in the incarnation. So um, it is a means of revelation for us in, in this, this one line for the Nicene Creed. We're not going to spend too much time on that because I want to talk a little bit more about um, what's in the Apostles' Creed. And that is in, uh, you know, for a long time Lutherans who uh, did learn in confirmation. So theology of the body is actually in confirmation. Uh, does any... Is anyone willing to attempt the explanation for the first article of the Creed? Apostles' Creed? I have it written down so you could have totally cheated and just read it. No, Michael, don't even say it. Don't even attempt it. I, I do this with uh, the, the junior high kids a lot. And then they're I'm like, well, it's actually right in front of you. Just, you have to look down. It's a bad trick. Um, so the, the first article of the Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, all my members, my reason, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. This is hopefully, you know, reminding you of the good old days. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, if you're a woman, husband and children, land animals and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil, all that he's done out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it's my duty to thank and praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. All right. I think um, as Lutherans, we will intersect, intersect with the theology of the body in a variety of ways. But if we're kind of thinking creedally, it's already in the first article of the Apostles' Creed in the explanation of, of Luther. This is a very uh, kind of peculiar explanation of God being a creator. Because when we think of creation, 
and I did it already with confirmation because that's how the workbook works from CPH. But when we think of creation, what, do, what is typically speaking, what do we normally start with? Genesis and the stuff out there, right? Because it's kind of Bible flows. Luther doesn't do that. And that, that's, that's, a very, that's, a, that's a very important distinction that we make. Because as Lutherans, when we talk about creation, there is no creation for you unless there is a, a you. <laughs> and this is important for us because this is very helpful for us too as we interact with others. And um, now I've been told Pastor Bruzik does not stick to the outline. Right? Okay. So this is good. Uh, so this is something where I was almost debating whether to even put this, give this to you guys because I don't, I don't know if it's really helpful. But um, so Luther, when he explains the first article of the Creed, God made me. So God made goes back to Genesis chapter 1. This is obvious. Um, and so we have Genesis 1 and 2. That plays a prominent role. But God has made me and all creatures. So as we think about creation, first and foremost, we can't think about creation without thinking about ourselves, which at, at kind of first glance seems a very kind of self-centered way of understanding things. But let's think about this in, a, in a, just kind of a very fundamental thing. If you're not around, what's it to you if there's creation or not? That's basically it. If you're not around, creation is meaningless to you in the first, in the, in, in the first place. So Luther says, God has made me and all creatures. So there's a subjective understanding of, now, the objective reality that we live in. And this is important for us to kind of consider as we think about our bodies. Because when we think about our bodies, we primarily think about them in terms of the way I look, right? It goes back to the Speedo. Somehow. You know, a couple of years ago, there was, a, there, was a, there was a little film that was put out by St. John. Now, I, we never saw that guy's face, but you're all very comfortable with me anyways. So, for those who had not seen that uh, short film, it's probably fine. You're not missing much. Okay. Anyways, uh, yeah, so, uh, so when we think about our bodies, we mainly think about it as being just kind of our own, for ourselves. And, you know, this gets played out in the way we look, or, you know, if I'm out of shape or in shape, yada, yada, yada. But, see, what Luther says in the first article of the Creed, and John Paul also does, is that there is actually a subjective reality, meaning me, but this me is also connected to the objective truth, the the stuff kind of out there. So God has made me and all creatures, and then Luther goes back, all the things that make me me, right? My senses, my body, my soul, all the things I touch. So it, it is the first turn that um, Luther says, without you, there is no creation. Now, that's true for you subjectively, because if you're not around, it doesn't really matter. But Luther also says that for creation objectively, meaning that if you're not around, then creation as God created is not what it's supposed to be. All right, so that's, that's I mean, these are, these are important things for us to think about in terms of the theology of the body because um, 
your body is primary to you. Okay, now what is, breaking that down, what does that mean? So Genesis 1 and 2, uh, we find out uh, that people are made of, of body and spirit. So think about um, Genesis 2. What does God take? He takes dust of the earth, right? He takes, takes stuff, and then what does he do? He breathes into it. Now, of course, the word for breath well, I, mean, I, mean, I don't know, maybe Pastor, I mean, Pastor Brick, it sounds like he hasn't gotten that far yet. So um, when he breathes into it, he spirits it. Uh, he spirits this. So we as, the Bible says you're, you're, the person who you are is body and, and spirit. Now the word spirit is breath. It could mean, now in terms of redemption, it's, the, you know, it, it's also you know, the, the Holy Spirit comes into our life. Some people will ask if we're body, soul, and spirit, but that's not that's not that's actually not what the Bible teaches. So um, that's that's a kind of, that's a pagan way of understanding ourselves. We're body and spirit, but the word "and" is a is a uh, connecting word. It's not a it's not a disconnecting word. So you can very well say, "Is I am a, I am body? I don't have a body. I am." body. And that is something that the Bible teaches. Now, you know, grammatically speaking, that's not, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I embody, right? We, we don't talk that way. But in terms of the Bible, that's what it teaches. And Luther, Lutheranism has a whole presupposition about the same presuppositions. And, you know, if, if I come back next week, I'll show you all those um, kind of quotes. All right, so that's important for us to kind of realize is that as the Bible speaks for body and spirit. Now, that, that rubs up against kind of our modern way of understanding the body. So, uh, there's not, not to get too nerdy, but there's a philosopher um, from, the, you know, from a long time ago named Rene Descartes, and he has this very famous dictum, uh, I think, therefore I am. And, you know, whether you knew, you've probably heard that before, whether you know it comes from Rene Descartes or not. But this, this, this kind of phrase really permeates our, our culture because it's the, it's the mind that makes existence rather than, um, and John Paul actually has this great thing, is um, uh, thought determines, he, on a critique of today, Thought determines existence versus existence determining thought. So going back to the subjective and objective kind of things I was talking about before was really there's no objective reality. It's just the subjective. Um, John Paul says, well, you know, that's neither of those are correct. You have to have both. You have a subjective and objective. So what happens with this way of thinking is is that it it makes you, a thought becomes the means in which you are a subject. Now, when I use the word subject, I'm thinking about English grammar. A subject is a, a, a noun that does something, right? Okay, excellent. Um, so the thing that does something for you, especially as it relates to the body, is your mind. So if I think something, that's what makes it is, regardless of kind of the, the thing itself. All right. But by doing that, then, my body turns into an object. 
a receiver of said verb or action. Now that is something that, you know, connections should already be, if you pay attention to the news, this is just kind of normal talk on the nightly news, is that your body is an object now and not part of the subject. Okay. Now, you know, within that too, though, there, within Christian thought, there is an uh, old heresy, um, uh, Manichaeism, and that's an ancient heresy from the 3rd century, which created this dualistic understanding of, of the world. There was good and there was evil. There was light. There was dark. And when we talk about body and spirit, they have to fit within this dualism. So guess, between the body and the spirit, guess went to the light or to the good. Spirit and body was part of the, the bad or the, the evil. That was something rampant, and it still plays out in today. And John Paul makes a special mention of this new Manichaeism, which plays itself in a lot of kind of pietistic or legalistic forms of Christianity. Okay, so rather than the body receiving life from the spirit, the spirit giving life to the body, man uh, either you know, has control of the body or the man could disregard his body as an object. So in, in this, old, this old kind of heresy was you... The, the spirit needs to get control of the body as an object, or the body, since it, it's not part of the subject, it doesn't it doesn't actually matter. Matter. So you actually have Christians. Well, I mean, use that term loosely, who would indulge in the body because it didn't matter. What's most important is spirit. Now that that sounds kind of strange to us in today because you don't know you don't know a lot of Christians who would say it's usually the opposite. There's a lot of Christians who say you know you have to make sure that you eat this kind of diet. You know you, you can't eat any sort of uh, bottom feeder of, of fish or something like this, and uh, you gotta eat, take the right medicine and vitamins and things like that. that that's if you watch TBN. Does anyone watch TBN by the way? It's okay. I know some of you do, and you don't have to admit it. It's okay. <laughs> TBN, Trinity Broadcasting Network. Well, I watch it, and it's, it's, I do watch it like I read the tabloids. So it's probably not good for me. I, I am mocking TBN. Sorry, I shouldn't do that. It's not very Christian. But the point is, is that this is pervasive in, in some American Christianity, is that uh, our body is an object that we need to get control of. But for pious reasons. Okay, now the thing is, though, but that, that's not what, what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches your body is part of your subject, it's part of who you are, and you can't treat it like an object. It's not raw material. Okay? So what is my body? It's, you know, I'm looking down at my body. That's what it is. It's whatever, when you look down, that's what it is. That's your body. I don't want to make it any more simple than that. It is what, it's what I touch. Okay. John Paul, though, adds a caveat, which is actually in the first art, explanation of the first article of the Creed, according to Luther. And it's in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The one caveat that he adds is that uh, you see your body not just as looking yourself down, but... Uh, you see your body as yours just when another sees it as so. So, 
Think of the Genesis story. God says, let us make man in our image. He made man, and then just kind of finish the sentence, male and female. And a part of our language even, so John Paul uses the biblical language. It's kind of crazy. Use the Bible. Uh, so he'll talk about man, but being male and female. So man in the Bible, man as man is, is both male and female. Um, now, of course, when you hear that, you're thinking man as, you know, like Pastor Nelson, he's a man. No, he's thinking the, the Bible uses the word man in a, you know, in a, in a larger sense. It's not until Genesis 2 where Adam or dirt man comes in, and then that would be kind of how we typically use the word man, as, you know, there's a man, there's a woman. Okay, but uh, Genesis 1, man is male and female. So with that said, though, you get that played out in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam, he goes around and he names, you know, he goes and names all the animals. And at the end of the day, you know, what's, what's our impression of Adam? It's been a good day for him or kind of a tough day for him? Now, why has it been tough for Adam? What does he realize about himself? He, yeah, now the word alone, of course, is, is kind of a loaded term. He's, in, I would use the word he's in solitude. Um, because even though he's in solitude, he is who he is. It's not like he's not who he is. That's important for us. Versus our kind of understanding when you're alone or when you're lonely, we say, well, that's not the way life is supposed to be. So you're not who you are. Adam, at the end of the day, yeah, it's, it's been kind of a tough day. And we've all had those days where we've done our job just right. And you know, at the end of the day, we could probably sleep well, but it's been a tough day. This is Adam. He's been a tough day. He's been doing, he's doing exactly what God asked him to do. Naming the animals, love and life, live in large. But at the end of the day, he realizes, hey, there's, there's got to be something, there's something else, something coming up. Okay, so in that moment, he's found out something about himself found out who he is. He's a body amongst many bodies, and he's, he's different. But at the same time, he knows something about his body, is that there is another, there, ha, there is to be something else that fits with him. And of course, God doesn't wait too long, right? Puts him to sleep, wakes up, holy smokes, there's E right there. And what does he say? This at last, which is kind of funny, right? Because, I mean, how long has Adam been around, right? But his whole entire existence has been in this posture of receiving. He's, oh, he's finally got it. He's got it. Or he's got her, uh, it. That's, um, that's not a good way to talk about people in general. It's, yeah. um, he, if flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Um, so what we find out now is that um, the body, as you look at it, it that's, that's who you are. This is me. I am not anything besides this. And, but at the same time, there's a relational aspect to our bodies. And this is very important for us. So 
Okay, so there's the, uh, your, your, your subject, uh, Adam and Eve, Genesis uh, 2. So Adam realizes, I'm sorry, yeah, Genesis 2, 18 through, well, just put Genesis 2. I, I made a little too specific on my note there. But So um, God has made me. Solitude is man's first revelation of being a, a person, a body among bodies, where man's body is utterly unique. And so it, it's not, I mean, this is the thing, is, you know, you think about it, Adam hasn't, he doesn't have anybody else telling him anything besides God and kind of what he sees, right? Now, this is the pre-fall business. That's an important distinction as we kind of meditate upon this, is that it's very difficult for us to imagine a world without sin. You know, I would say it's impossible. So we really need to kind of stick towards the word of God, when we kind of talk about things pre-fall, and we don't want to get too far in speculation. So that, that's something that's real hard for anybody to do. Okay, so the whole point is, is that, um, as I already said, so when God makes creation, according to the explanation of the first article creed that, from the small catechism, which is our basic Christian doctrine, it's kind of funny, right, because it's basic, but... I mean, none of us have really seriously thought about this before. Um, God has made me. Um, and, and making me, me, means like being right here. Um, in fact, uh, uh, so there's a Lutheran guy, Oswald Bayer, who has a kind of a little commentary on uh, being in the image of God. And being part of the uh, image of God is this end of Genesis chapter 1, where being made in the image of God, one of the primary things of what that means is not just kind of a, so kind of during the Middle Ages, what made a man a man or a human a human is kind of the rational soul. Well, according to the Genesis text, let us make man in our image. Well, here, let's just quote it. And this is where this is where Luther is real helpful for us, is because he kind of questions that idea. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that keeps on, uh, uh, creeps on the earth." So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, he created them. So um, there's a relational aspect of the image of God that is parts of, of what makes people people. So, you know, the danger of exclusively thinking of ourselves being made in the image of God as just being kind of a, a thinking person is that we then now become alone. We, we kind of separate ourselves from the community of, of what it means to have a body. Okay, so, um, all right, so the, the relational aspect, your body is inherently relational because God created man in his image. Oh, I already just said that. Okay, great. Um, the definitive creation of man consists in the creation of the unity of two beings and the appearance to each other of male and female. So, you know, this is something that's it's a hot topic. I mean, um, this, is, uh, this is, will get me kicked out of a variety of college universities, this kind of discussion, right? Unfortunately. Yeah, Michael. Sorry, just 
I'm having trouble understanding kind of like uh, the whole matter of the timeline. So the quote, he, male and female, he created them in yep. chapter 120. That's right. But then you don't get Eve until chapter 2, almost 3. That's right. Man, it's tough to tell God's time, isn't it? I'll tell you what. This is true. Yeah. So, um, the, uh, you know, there's, there's a variety of interpretations of, you know, how can God say that? And it seems like he makes it, but it takes him a while. What's going on? Um, Augustine said that chapter 1 takes place in kind of God's mind, which is from all eternity. So in God's mind, everything holds together. And he can talk about things in kind of linear order. But they're all either happening all at once or not happening at once. It is a little like Doctor Who. <laughs> but then he would say in chapter two, then it's now kind of from from uh, like man's perspective. It's it's what's happening uh, of Genesis one. That that that's kind of a typical interpretation of what's happening there. Um, other people have just said, you know, a. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. But they both they both are true. So and and that's that's important for us to kind of realize is that you know as we come to our holy scripture we are servants of the scripture and we we kind of let things happen. But that's the, the, the I mean and that's what I would kind of say is that in Genesis one God is having this discussion amongst Himself. You know Trinity Holy Trinity talking amongst themselves, and so once. You know, once God speaks, right, it happens. But at the same time, when that happens, it gets a little complicated from God's perspective. Because if you think God is, you know, all-powerful everywhere at all times, linear, linear is not really something that he's restricted by. Things happening one thing after another. But we are. So, yep. So I, I would say, yeah, sometime on the sixth day, you know, that happened. But I don't know. It's five o'clock. I don't know. Seven o'clock. Yeah. I have something that's bothering me. Yeah. Okay. Humans are body and soul. Yeah, body, and spirit, soul. Yep. We exist. Or soul. You know, without one, we, we do not exist. Right. So, what happens when Jesus comes back and? Yeah, okay, this is a great question. That's right, that's right. It gets all kind of mashed together, doesn't it? Yeah, so um, this is unfortunately one of the, the one of the deficiencies of John Paul's writing. So this is something where this is like a really great topic to bring up. And uh, so I'm just going to kind of talk like freely. I don't know. I mean, so my, my thinking of this is that all right, so if I can recast the question. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says we're going to be resurrected and we'll have spiritual bodies. Now, the word for body is bodies, okay? It's not angels or disembodied, but it's some spiritual body that is different than kind of our pre-death body, but at the same time, it's still you, Okay. And that's essentially 1 Corinthians 15. It's a, it, by the way, it's a great chapter. If you're a Johnny Cash fan, 
You probably already know a lot about it because he's got a great song on First Corinthians 15. Um, so what he what uh, what Paul does there is that it's a confession of of our bodies, right? And we confess that in the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body. Okay. But when we start asking questions about, well, what does the spiritual body look like, or what's it made out of? Our recourse now goes back to Genesis chapter 1, right? Dust. Dust of the earth. And of course, if we know anything about bodies, they get decomposed and they become dirt. Dirt then becomes, I don't know, a vegetable garden. You know, and then it becomes nutrients. I mean, everything gets all mashed together. Yeah, that's right. So, so I would even carry it further than like my rotted body becomes somebody else's body. I mean, I don't know, it just becomes part of creation. I think that's the best way to say it. So this is where the, the doctrine of uh, creating out of nothing comes in. Ex nihilo, some Latin word. I don't know how to pronounce English, so don't ask me how to pronounce it in Latin. But um, So God creates something out of nothing, or by his word. That same premise then comes in in the resurrection. Uh, it's a, the new creation, but... So, but the thing is, though, is that there is this connection now, between, like you, your person. And so that's the mystery of, like, kind of what the body will be. But it will be the same kind of action out of nothing. In, in fact, Luther says that about just normal creation. Your first creation, your birth, even though that you, you know where you came from, right, from your parents, Luther will talk about your creation as being the same as Adam's. And hence the first article of the creed, God has made me and all creatures. He doesn't say he made Adam, then he, you know, then some other people, and then came me. So that same uh, idea of out of nothing would then come into the new creation. But that's the extent of, to which I'm going to kind of discuss it. But I, I mean, I, you know, we're going to have some body. It, you know, obviously in terms of quality, we think it's going to be a better body. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's going to be a body free from sin. But, you know, as the sermon says today, you know, the life of comparing is not going to be part of our... So, who knows what it's going to look like. It's going to be, it's going to be fine. Any questions about my response or any, like, clarification? Because, like I said, I'm just kind of talking off the... You know, when I read the Bible, I think about it. I haven't really studiously thought about it. I think it just is, for me, it, we only exist because of the combination of the two. Once the two just are disembodied. Like, yeah, right. God exists outside of our physical nature, in the universe. Yeah, God is pure spirit, that's right. So, there's no, like, body storage database in heaven. That's right. <laughs> like, and even if there were, that still exists outside of us, and whether or not he has a way to directly, you know, it's just all Well, yeah, no, so this is a great question. This goes back to the linear aspect of our time and experience, time and space. Again, not to get, you know, too Dr. Hui on you, um, is that we, th- that's part of the mystery. And, and so we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, that word is used specifically about the death and resurrection. There's this mystery about it. Um. So, yeah, I mean, the earth in some form or fashion is, uh, 
the, the matrix or the database that stores all of our selves, I guess. But again, you know, that, that doesn't really make any sense either. So, Kathy. Well, I was just thinking as you were talking <coughs> that, uh, you know, Lazarus was sick. Yeah. And when we're sick, you know, stuff starts like dying. Yeah, falling apart, yep. And then he dies and he's dead for four days. That's right. And, you know, he's already smelling. Yep. So when when Jesus comes to his tomb, right. I think it's, it's cool that he stands there and he doesn't just, like, his hand. He, he calls him by name. He calls right. Lazarus that's right. That's right. Come out, and he comes out. He's still Lazarus. Now he's still Lazarus, even though like parts maybe fell off. Well, who knows what he looks like? That's right. Started, like, going yeah. Somewhere, and he calls him out, and I'm, it's like, okay, what came out really? That's right. It, There's no description of it. Same Lazarus, maybe, because like stuff kind of fell off. Well, yeah, I mean, like... He's and, Lazarus. He's still Lazarus. Later on, they eat. They have a, you know... Yeah, right. ...party, and he's there, and everybody realizes he's Lazarus, but it was like, that was like the beginning where, like, stuff was, like, already leaving, but God right. called him by name, and he came back as Lazarus, and everybody knows what Lazarus. That's right. Um, so the Gospel of John is really, really great on that. Those, those are the two high points. So you have John chapter 1, and then you have uh, John chapter... Uh, 11 with Lazarus because after John chapter 11 then things get really scary when you have this new creation show up on the earth life cannot things have to change and of course the Pharisees and the religious leaders don't want it to change and so you know what do they try to do for Lazarus to Lazarus they want to kill him uh not that I'm advocating this movie, but I, I really do enjoy it. The Last Temptation of Christ. Created a lot of stir back in the 80s when it came out. But there's a great sequence of Lazarus in that movie. Lazarus is raised from the dead by this character, Jesus, this Jesus character. It's not a, it's not a literal retelling of the Gospels. So they make, they make that abundantly clear. Um, but it's kind of a meditation on things. Is that? Um, but he, he's alive, but he he looks sick still, and and get and he gets murdered. And guess who's the one who kills him? The character, Paul, who saw, which I think is kind of an interesting little tidbit there. It's timeline. Speaking of timelines, would work. Saul killing people. When did that start? When did Saul start killing followers of Jesus? Yeah, but yeah. So this is uh, not to get on a tangent here, but it, it started before Stephen because he knew Jesus. Paul probably knew Jesus already when he was in Galilee. So there's there's a variety of interesting things going on. He finally got permission from the uh, leaders in in Acts. Yeah. Anyways, that's the side point. The whole point, though, is, is that, as Kathy was saying, is that we don't really have an idea of what Lazarus came, when he came out. We just picture him being the same old, same old. But that's not actually what the Bible says. I mean, we don't know what, he's, what it looks like, but he knows he is he. And that's the fundamental reality. And that's really important for us 
to uh, make special note. Okay, um, well, let's finish up. Well, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of interesting things. So ramifications, uh, let's just go, the body's answerable to truth. Very end right there. John Paul's got a great little section about reading the Bible in truth. Did I say the Bible? Reading the body, body in truth. Reading the body in light of the truth, which is Christ. That goes back to John chapter 1, where the theology of the body comes through the main door. And then reading the body truly, or as it is. Um, many view this as a threat to human freedom. That would be today, right? Where if we, if uh, the only way we can kind of freely experience our body is if we actually, you know, treat it as an object. Um, but, but the reality is, though, is that since God has made me and all my members, my body, my my soul, my senses, God, there's an inherent meaning in my body because God made it. And so we can't simply treat it as an object. Our body is actually a servant of truth. But John chapter 8, verse 32, connects truth and freedom, right? Because the truth will set you free. So truth without freedom is tyranny. That's the old believer-die business. But freedom without truth is also tyranny. And I would say that is kind of the modern perspective today. Um, objective reality does not settle disputes. Power does. So you see this in modern political discourse. You see this in just kind of modern even academia, where something that should be providing a way forward, that is kind of science or facts, are disregarded for whatever political kind of opinion is primary. Um, so, I mean, there's some, a lot of great ramifications. I mean, great meaning kind of pervasive ramifications. Only as we know what the body truly is, that is, when we read the meaning the triune creator inscribes is that can we know how to behave with it? So how do we behave with it? This goes to marriage. This goes to, so it goes to marriage, goes to singlehood or, you know, celibacy. It goes to, um, obviously, gender. It goes to uh, sexual attraction. It goes to just kind of normal life. And then there's a whole slew of kind of theological understandings in terms of what you already said. Eucharistic understanding, and uh, even uh, creedal understanding. Okay. That was a smorgasbord of things this morning. So I, hopefully we, we get a little started just thinking about it. Um, yeah, okay, great. Uh, let's pray. Then we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.